at chapter 5 of Ephesians. And Paul, in this chapter, is going to continue to expound on the Christian's walk, which he began in chapter 4. And Paul's going to contrast walking according to the world's ways with walking according to God's ways. And he's going to exhort us to imitate Christ in our walk. And so tonight, I want us to look at our Christian walk from three perspectives. We're going to look at our walk in love, our walk in light, and our walk in wisdom. But before we get started with our study, let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And we just thank you, Lord, for your word, Father, that teaches us and guides us and directs us. We thank you for this opportunity to come sit at your feet once again, Lord. I pray that we would set aside all the cares of the day and um, anything that might distract us, Lord, from taking in your word and, and truly listening to it and applying it to our lives. And so I just ask, Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit to fill each and every one of us right now, Lord, and help us to have those um, attentive ears that are attuned to your voice, Father. And so we thank you and we praise you for the work you're about to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, Paul dealt with the spiritual blessings uh, with which God has blessed us in Christ. For example, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ in him, we also have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins, and we've obtained an inheritance. Paul told us all about what God has done for us, what he has promised to do for us, and all that he is planning to do for us. And last week, Trudy shared with us from chapter 4 the importance and the rich grace of unity in Christ and the importance of having a walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And now in chapter 5, having previously gone um, through the rich resources which God has made available to us, Paul continues to talk to us about our walk as Christians, which he began in chapter 4. And I love how Paul first lays the foundation of God's love, God's grace, God's goodness, God's blessings, God's provisions. And now in chapter 5, Paul is going to continue to exhort us to have a fruitful walk because we have been so loved of God, so blessed of God, and so taught of God. John tells us in 1 John 4:19, we love him because he first loved us. So we should desire a walk worthy of our calling, as a loving response to a loving God. And as we look at our walk, we need to remember that walking entails action. It entails forward motion. It entails forward progress. You know, we're not supposed to walk backwards or sideways or crooked, um, and we're not supposed to stand still. We are to grow and to mature, as Trudy told us last week as we pray and as we study God's word to learn about his ways and as we fellowship with one another. 
So let's look, first of all, at our walk in love. Notice, first of all, that verse 1 says, Therefore, be followers of God as dear children. Now, the word therefore here refers back to what Paul was talking about at the end of chapter 4. He said uh, that we're supposed to put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And we're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind that we put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. And Trudy reminded us last week that when we accept Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, we become what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And because we are a new creation, we no longer live like we used to when we are in the world. And so Paul exhorts us in verse 1 of chapter 5, because we are new creations, we are to be followers of God as dear children. And here the word followers can be better translated as mimics. You know, be mimics of God as dear children or be imitators of God as dear children. You know, those of you who are moms know that children often mimic what you do or what you say. And sometimes they mimic what you shouldn't do and what you shouldn't say, and often at at some embarrassing moments. Sometimes you might notice that your child is sitting with her little leg crossed like you cross your leg, or she talks to her dolls like you talk to her. You know, your children watch what you do. And they want to be like you. And in the same way, Paul says that we are to be mimics of God. We're to make Jesus our example and our model. We're to make Jesus' behavior towards us our measure for the way we behave towards others. And if we are seeking to imitate Jesus, people should be able to see his character reflected in ours, little by little, as we grow closer to him. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Here Paul declares that Jesus is our example in how to walk in love. He loved us when we were still sinners, and he laid down his life for us. He exemplified self-sacrificing love. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, we may never be called upon to lay down our actual life for someone else, but we can be self-sacrificing in our conduct towards others like Jesus was by being selfless instead of selfish, by being forgiving instead of harboring bitterness or unforgiveness in our hearts, by sharing instead of being self-centered and greedy, by doing a kindness for someone for no particular reason except to show them love. 
In verses 3 and 4, Paul gives the contrast to walking in love, and he describes the unloving conduct of unbelievers, which is not fitting for Christians. Paul says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. So here Paul um, gives two sets of three sins, which are sins of the heart that manifest themselves in our body or through our body. And I want you to notice that Paul first lists three sins that deal with sexual defilement to the body. So the first sin is fornication. And in most of scripture, it is used generally to mean sexual immorality. But here in the Greek, it refers to adultery specifically and intercourse with temple prostitutes. Because at this time, there was that uh, temple of Artemis. And part of those, um, uh, I don't know what you call them, um, rituals, you know, dealt with um, sexual intercourse with um, the temple prostitutes. Pastor Chuck, in his commentary, notes that fornication is not fitting conduct for Christians because the world mistakenly equates fornication with love. It is an act of lust, which does not really consider the other person. Rather, it leads them into a damning sin, and so becomes a very unloving act. The next two sins listed are all uncleanness, which means sexual uncleanness or impurity, and covetousness, which is unrestrained sexual greediness for more. And we need to remember that covetousness springs from a greedy self-centeredness and an arrogant disregard for God's law. We need to be careful because fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness are all around us, especially on TV at prime time and in the movies. And it sends a powerful message to our youth especially that these sins are not really that bad. You know, but they're expressions of love, which everybody is doing. It's part of growing up. We need to teach our children God's perspective on these sins. First Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul also adds, let these sins not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And by this, Paul means that these things should be so far removed from us that people wouldn't even think to associate us with them. In 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Paul exhorts us to abstain from every form or the appearance of evil. So we're not even supposed to give the appearance of evil in any small way. Next, Paul lists the second set of three sins, which deal with sexual defilement to our minds. And they are filthiness, foolish 
talking, and coarse jesting. And these refer to obscenities in act or gestures, the telling or listening to of dirty jokes, or speaking double entendres, which are um, words or phrases that have double meaning, one usually being sexual in nature. This type of behavior only serves to put filth and sexual immorality into our minds. And once there, it can be very difficult to remove. I know in my own life, there have been occasions where I just hear a word or a phrase, and immediately it brings to mind a dirty joke I heard a long time ago, or maybe a double entendre that I used in my BC days. BC meaning before Christ, okay? You know, and I cringe when, I, when they come to my mind, you know, and I quickly ask the Lord, please, Lord, break that connection. I don't want that in my mind. I don't want to remember those things. Colossians 3.8 tells us that we must put off filthy language out of our mouth. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. David Goodsig, a uh, Calvary Chapel pastor, says in his commentary, Paul isn't saying, avoid these things so that you can be a saint. And we know that uh, saint means one separated unto God. But rather, he is saying, you are a saint. Now live in a manner fitting of a saint. Be who you are in Jesus. And I like that. Be who you are in Jesus. Finally, in verses uh, 5 to 7, Paul gives the consequences of conduct not fitting for Christians. And the verses say, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And so Paul here is reminding Christians that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater will have any inheritance in the kingdom of God, period. He's just really straightforward in this declaration. Unbelievers or backslidden Christians may think that they can get by with these sins, that God in his great love will excuse the sins or pass over them. But the scriptures tell us that the next time Jesus comes to the earth, he's coming as a righteous judge. Second Timothy 4.1 declares that the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So we cannot allow anyone to deceive us by excusing or minimizing the judgment that will result by the practice of these sins. So Paul concludes by saying, therefore, do not be partakers with them. We're to walk in love, imitating Jesus, and not in habitual sinfulness, imitating the world. This brings us to our second point, our walk in light. Verses 8 to 10 say, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, 
For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Now, notice, first of all, that Paul doesn't say, you were once in darkness, but he says, you were once darkness. You know, before we accepted Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, we were darkness. We were lost, and we had no hope of going to heaven. The Holy Spirit did not reside in us, and we could not comprehend the things of God. But once we heard the gospel message and invited Jesus into our heart to be our Lord and Savior, we are now light in the Lord, and we're to walk as children of light. We're to be developing within us um, the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul declares is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, as opposed to developing those works of darkness, of fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. The fruit of the Spirit should mark us because the Holy Spirit dwells within us now if we belong to Jesus. And it's interesting to note here that light produces fruit. When you have fruit trees, you need the sun to get that fruit going. But the works of darkness are unfruitful as far as spiritual things are concerned. Galatians 5, and 23 tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is agape love, and it's manifested in joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this fruit should be more and more evident in our lives, proving what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And we need to remember that if we walk consistently in the light, we will gain greater light. And we also need to remember that the opposite is also true. If we consistently walk in darkness, we will gain greater darkness. Because there's just enough darkness still in us that if we are around darkness long enough, it will start pulling us in. 1 Corinthians 12, 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Verses 11 to 14 say, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dark, and Christ will give you light. So notice, first of all, that Paul says we're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We need to remember that when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he had asked them, what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer was none. There is no fellowship between light and darkness because they're mutually exclusive. They're not one, and they cannot coexist. When you turn on the light, the darkness disappears. When you turn off the light, the darkness reappears. And spiritually, this means that we cannot walk in darkness, and walk in the light at the same time. First John 1, 5-7 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we're not to be deceived. As Christians, we're always called to walk in the light, to walk according to God's word and according to God's ways. If we're walking in darkness according to our flesh or according to the world's standards instead of according to the spirit, we cannot have fellowship with God. And I hope you understand that. Not only are we not to have fellowship with the works of darkness, but we're also cause, called to expose them. We need to remember that Jesus is the light of the world. And as his followers, we are light holders. We're not called to walk in the world with pharisaical fingers, being judgmental and critical of everyone. But rather, we're to bring the light into the darkness with a humble and loving attitude, sharing with non-believers as the opportunities arise, sharing what Jesus has done for us, how the Lord took us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. But our greatest testimony is going to be our walk in the light, how we walk according to God's word, and how we refuse to walk in the unfruitful works of darkness. As we live our faith, the light of the Holy Spirit within us will shed light on the darkness of others, and God can use it to bring conviction upon them so that they can be saved as well. Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, "Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." I love what Pastor X um, often poses to us. He, he poses to us a question, and he says, If you were to, t- to be taken to court and put on trial because you're a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We need to be sure that we're imitating Jesus by walking in the light. This brings us to the third point in our study, our walk in wisdom. Verses 15 to 16 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wisdom always recognizes responsibility. And as Christians, we are called to walk in wisdom. Verse 15 says that we're to walk circumspectly. And the word circumspectly means to walk carefully, accurately. In the right way. It means that we're to walk and live up to the light which we possess. You know, if you are new believers, then you should be busy reading the word daily to become familiar with it. You should be making a specific time for daily prayer. And you should be coming to church to listen to the word being taught. If you've been walking with the Lord for several years or a long time, you should be familiar with God's word. You should have developed a consistent prayer life. And there should be spiritual fruit evident in your life. Spiritual growth should be evident. And godly relationships should have been developed. And if possible, hopefully, 
you are um, in a ministry of some sort using your gifts. But we're not to walk as fools who walk carelessly and without purpose. The fool doesn't consider his need for God, and he doesn't fear God, and he doesn't recognize that time is passing him by. Scripture has a lot to say about fools. For example, Psalm 53.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Paul is exhorting us not to be fools, but to be wise women. Verse 16 tells us that we are to walk in wisdom in order to redeem the time because the days are evil. And the phrase redeeming the time comes from the Greek word kairos, which refers to a seasonal time, um, a window time, which is there for just a short time. You know, once this window closes, it's gone. We may be given a window time to minister the gospel to a certain person, you know, or to show forth God's love in a special way to someone. And when we walk in wisdom, we will see that opportunity and we'll recognize the Holy Spirit's leading and we'll step out in faith. We do not waste that time, but we make the best use of it. And we redeem the time because the days are evil. You know, when Paul wrote this, it was a time of persecution. And the Christians were in jeopardy every hour of every day. We're in the last days today. And as we look at our world around us, we can see that time is becoming more and more evil. You know, for example, uh, yesterday I heard that uh, ISIS did a mass beheading of Christians. Um, And unfortunately, they're just getting started, you know. So we need to walk in wisdom. We need to redeem the time because these days are indeed evil. Verse 17 says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And where do we go to find the will of the Lord? We go to Scripture. It's revealed in the Word. And so it's important that we study daily, you know, the Word, so that we can learn what that will for us is. In John 15, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. So as we study the Gospels especially, we need to notice what Jesus says and how he handled various situations, how he dealt with people. Uh, What did he do? What did he say? How did he do it? And by learning what he did, we can better understand the will of the Lord for us. And we can begin to imitate him by putting on the mind of Christ. Verses 18 to 21 say, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And so here Paul makes another contrast between the person filled with wine and the person filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to note a few things. Um, First of all, both persons are seeking after the same things. They both want to fill themselves with great joy, strength, and courage. But the drunkard's joy, strength, and courage is short-lived and usually ends up in dissipation or destruction of some kind. Being filled with the Holy Spirit increases Christians' joy, strength, and courage for the things of God. They both want to sing, but the drunkard sings slurred, obscene, and profane songs. But the Christian sings songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. The drunkard usually ends up angry and full of bitterness, not to mention a bad hangover. But the Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit and with an attitude of gratitude for all that they have been given by God. Finally, the drunkard usually refuses to submit to anyone. But the person filled with the Holy Spirit is willing to submit to others in the fear of the Lord. The Christian filled with the Holy Spirit is concerned about serving others, just as Jesus was. And so Paul exhorts us, be filled with the Spirit. And here he's actually saying, be continually filled with the Spirit. Because we know that being filled with the Spirit isn't just a one-time event, but we have to ask to be filled often. We need to remember that if we don't walk according to the Spirit, we will walk according to our flesh. It's also interesting to note that alcohol is a depressant. It loosens people because it depresses their self-control, their wisdom, their balance, and their judgment. The Holy Spirit, however, has the total opposite effect. He's a stimulant. He moves every aspect of our being to a better and more perfect performance. Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker. Intoxicating drink arouses brawling. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In verses 22 to 33, and I'm just going to go over these uh, rather generally, Paul is going to end the chapter by speaking of the spirit-filled life as being marked by submission to one another in the family. And he's going to address specifically the submission of wives and husbands. Now, the word submit in these verses literally means to be under in rank. It's a military word, and it speaks of levels of rank in the military, like generals, colonels, majors, captains, etc. Now, a private can be smarter, more talented, and a better person than a general, but he's still under the rank of the general. So the idea of submission in Scripture has to do with a God-appointed order. Warren Wearsby says in his commentary, anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. 
And just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. It's also important to note that the um, motive for submission is not social kindness, but rather submission is done in the fear of the Lord. And the word fear means respect, and it's a respect that's compatible with the word love. Wives and husbands willingly submit to one another because they respect Jesus and they want to please him. They willingly submit to his order of authority. Submission also does not mean inferiority, nor does it mean silence. And David Goodsig in his commentary says, Submission means submission. There is a mission for the Christian marriage, and that mission is obeying and glorifying God. The wife says, I'm going to put myself under that mission. That mission is more important than my individual desires. I'm not putting myself below my husband. I'm putting myself below the mission God has for our marriage and for my life. And so in verses 22 to 24, wives are to submit, first of all, to their own husbands as to the Lord. They're not to submit to every man, just to their own husbands, and they're to submit as unto the Lord, which means that a wife submits in obedience to the Lord and is trusting God to work through her obedience. The wife's submission as unto the Lord also means that she is submitting according to God's creative order, for man was created first and then woman. Secondly, she submits to her own husband, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and Jesus is the Savior of the body. And Jesus' the Savior protects provides for and preserves the church. And in the same way, Jesus has appointed the husband to be the protector, provider, and preserver of his wife. Thirdly, just as the church is subject to Christ, wives are to be subject to their own husbands in everything in the Lord. Wives, however, do not have to submit to their husbands if he asks her to violate her conscience or scripture. And Acts 5.29 says that we ought to obey God rather than men in these areas. In verses 25 to 31, the submission of husbands is addressed, and they're to submit to their wives by loving them. First of all, husbands are to love their wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives with a love that is sacrificial, with a love that is sufficient, and with a love that is satisfying after the order of Christ. Husbands are also to die to self and draw from Christ. Otherwise, they'll become tyrants and not loving husbands. Secondly, husbands are to love their wives and set them apart, not only for himself, but for the Lord. If the wife is committed to the Lord, If she loves God more than her husband, she will be a good and loving wife. Thirdly, husbands need to be the priest of their home. They should be leading their wife and children in praying and in studying the word. Fourthly, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. They're to nourish them and cherish them, just as the Lord does the church. 
In other words, their love for their wife should mature and grow and develop, and they should show her warmth and love and tenderness and affection. The husband is to be a type of Christ filled with the Spirit of God. In verse 31, Paul gives God's plan for marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And finally, Paul ends the chapter exhorting husbands to love their own wives as themselves, and he exhorts wives to respect their husbands. Walking in imitation of Jesus is very important for each and every one of us to do. For he's our example, and he is our model for successful Christian living. So we need to keep our focus on Jesus as we continue to be like him, as we walk in love, as we walk in light, and as we walk in wisdom. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this um, study tonight. There was so much, Lord, in this chapter. And I just pray, Father, that you would give us the courage and the strength, Lord, to uh, really um, apply these lessons, Lord, to our lives. Don't allow us to take them for granted, Lord, or to just put this book aside or um, this lesson aside, Father. But help us to grow and to mature in you, Lord. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Teach us your ways. Help us to grow fruit in, in ourselves, Lord, that we would be a reflection of you to those around us, Lord. And I just pray, Father, for those who are ill, Lord. I pray that you would just uh, touch them, Father, and heal them, Lord, especially if they have this flu, Lord, that's going around. I just pray that you would um, heal them, Lord. I also pray for traveling mercies, Father, as we leave this place and keep us safe as, as we go home. And again, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we still have, Lord, of being able to come here and listen to your word being expounded, Father. So we just thank you, Lord, for the work you are doing in us and will continue to do in us, Lord. We thank you and we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.